We're carrying on today our, our, our series uh, it's side by side, and um, we're just at a kind of, we're coming towards the end, actually, and we're, uh, we're at a point now as we're approaching the summer, um, where it's kind of towards the end of the academic year, and it's a good moment to begin just to, to kind of pause and take some, uh, I guess, uh, a few moments of reflection, take uh, stock of, of, of where we're at. At the moment, my kids are absolutely um, loving this summer of sport. There's various World Cups going on. There's lots of sport uh, on our TV all the time. I say my kids. I mean two-thirds of my kids are loving it. My daughter, she hates it. Um, every time it comes in, oh, <laughs> what's this? Oh, moment. It, this is called cricket. Learn to love it. As long as you're living, as long as you're living under my house, my rules. <laughs> When you start earning, you can put whatever you want on your TV. <laughs> and the boys are like, woohoo! Anyway, the boys come in from school, and, and there's usually cricket on every day. And they're like, who's winning? And basically, that's kind of an easy question to answer if you're watching football or, or rugby, because there's a score, and you know who's winning. Cricket, if you know anything about it, is a little, that's not a very good question to ask. Like, cricket is a very different kind of game. I mean, there are really no other games that could take place for five days, and no one wins at the end of it. But. But basically, I'm kind of teaching my kids, this is 50 over cricket. Some of you are looking so blank. Cricket, what is he talking about? <laughs> I taught my kids uh, that a question, are, you, are we winning, is, is, not, is not the best question to ask, especially when it comes to cricket. It's like a better question is, how are we doing? So they basically pick a team uh, and ask, how are we doing? The younger one asks, how are we doing first? And then depending on how I say, that's who he's supporting in that particular moment. But that's the question I want to pause and ask today. How are we doing? This series is all about growing in as disciples, as family members, as missionaries. How are we doing? Are we being successful in it? If I were to ask you a question uh, right now and, and, and just pause and, and say, talk amongst yourselves for a few moments or just make some notes yourself. If I was to ask you the question, what does a successful life look like? What would you say? If you were to honestly answer the question, like honestly, not like to give the, the Christian answer that you're supposed to give. If you were to honestly answer the question, what does success look like for me this year? We're almost at the halfway point of the year. I think we're there, actually. What does success look like for me in 2019? What would you say? See, truthfully, most of us in this room are super busy, Right? We've got things that we want to achieve. There are things that we're expected to achieve. There's pressure on us from umpteen different sides. We've got work and family and relationships and then personal stuff going on. And then there's church kind of things going on. And there's all sorts of stuff in our lives that it can feel sometimes like we're just spinning plates. Can I just, oh, don't, don't want anything to fail. I want to be successful I, got, I want to be successful in work, and I need to have a measure of success or else I'm going to get fired. I want to be successful in family life because, well, I, want to, I don't want this to be difficult. I want to be successful. And we're conscious that we don't want to mess up and we don't want to fail. And then we have the added dimension that, that God wants us to be successful too. Right? That's, that's kind of his, 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 part of his nature, his, his desire for us is that we would be fruitful, we would be successful. He doesn't want us to fail. We just got to be clear on what his definition of success looks like. If you've got a Bible, just flick to Romans 12. All the things will be appear on the screen, hopefully, too. Just above uh, verse 9 of Romans 12, there's this little phrase, marks of a true Christian. 
marks of a true Christian. And in verse 11, it says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. There you go. True Christians, they work hard. They give themselves to God. They serve him. They're passionate. We've got all this stuff to accomplish, guys. There's a great big mission that we're called to, this great big story of salvation that we're drawn into. Let's go. Come on. Be successful. This, we've got to be disciples. We've got to be family members. We've got to be missionaries. Go, 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 go. Be successful in everything we do. Except I'm not entirely sure this is exactly what that verse is saying. I love the, the message version of this verse. It says, don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Don't burn out. Keep yourself fueled and aflame. Back into uh, the, the version we just looked at a moment, fervent in spirit. Fervent, this passionate intensity is what that word means. This passionate intensity in our spirit in the cause of serving the Lord. Make sure you have fuel in your tank. Make sure you are giving everything in order to be successful. But how do we get it all done? Because like, we've got a lot to do, right? How can we be successful, like genuinely successful? I, I just want to focus a few moments on this, and then we're going to come and spend some time before the Lord. You see, I, there's two big things I just want us to consider when it comes to being successful. And the first is this. We are creatures of dust. We're creatures of dust. Now, yes, we were made in the image of God, and it's because we're made in the image of God that that gives us intrinsic value and intrinsic worth. You are valuable and have worth because you are made in the image of God. But we are not God. We were made. There was once a time when you did not exist physically on this earth, and there will come a time when, again, on this earth, you will no longer exist again. We are creatures of dust. Genesis 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Psalm 90, verse 3, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. Psalm 103, verse 14, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. We're creatures of dust. And this is actually, far from being like, oh, that's a bit miserable. This is actually wonderfully freeing because we have limits and we have limitations on us. We can't do everything and nor are we expected to do everything. God knows our frame. God knows our limitations. He knows what we can and can't do. He knows what we can and can't achieve. He does not expect us to be superheroes. He knows who he's getting on his team. He knows, he's under no illusions. He knows that we are not superstars. And even if we are some kind of superstar, well, that superstar status is soon gone. We're creatures of dust. And this wonderfully frees us because we don't need to achieve huge things in order to be considered to be successful. Because at the end of the day, from dust we came and to dust we will return. No matter what we accumulate, on this planet, we entered with nothing, and we're going to leave with nothing. Now, does this mean that we just, well, give up then? <laughs> don't do anything, don't kind of just, well, well, what's the point? From dust to dust, so I, I don't need to do anything. No, of course not. This verse here tells us we're not to be slothful, but instead being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And we serve the Lord by using the gifts he's given us, 
the talents he's given us, the treasures that he has given us, within the sphere of influence within which he has placed us. And each of us have been placed in a sphere of influence. In your family, in your street, in your workplace, in your community, in your whatever it is, you've been placed in a sphere of influence. And the Lord has given you gifts and talents in order to influence that sphere of influence. And so we therefore strive to be successful in all that we do. Which leads us to a second big thing to consider. We're creatures of dust, but this is the second thing. Success in the kingdom of God often looks like failure in the eyes of the world and vice versa. Success in the kingdom of God often looks like failure in the eyes of the world. And success in the eyes of the world often looks like failure in the eyes of God. You see, what the world looks at and thinks is a failure is not always a failure in the kingdom of God. I mean, just look at Jesus for a moment. By worldly standards, just Think about how successful Jesus was for a moment. He never got married. He never had sex. He never made a lot of money. He never even owned a house. Never got on that property ladder. He never wrote a book. He didn't even have a great number of people following him. Like even at the height of his ministry, even when he was most successful, look at it in John chapter 6. There's this moment where Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And there are, plus all the rest of them, there are literally thousands of people following Jesus. Like if we had just had a picnic, if the church picnic a week or so ago had suddenly 5,000 people turned up and we suddenly managed to feed them somehow from a few loaves and a few fish, man, we would be tweeting about that and putting it all over social media. We would be, like if this church just exploded and there were suddenly tens of thousands, like everyone would oh, look at this, this is amazing. Yet just a few verses later, this is exactly what's happening to Jesus. Look at verse 61 in John 6. The disciples were grumbling. Massive success, and yet they're grumbling. And then in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Wow. Like, I'm not sure that any of us would want to suggest that Jesus was a failure. And yet by worldly standards, he kind of was. He hardly achieved anything. He couldn't really even keep the people who had begun to follow him. They all just grumbled and moaned and walked off. I just want to go back to the question I asked you earlier. What does success look like for you? Now, if, if we were being honest, most of us probably, if we answered the question, probably had some kind of activity thing going on there. What does success look like? It looks like this tangible thing that I achieved. It looks like something that I did. It looked like something that I'm, I'm proud of. It looks like something I can point to and say, look at that. I did that. I achieved that. I was successful in this. Now, let's just be really clear. What we achieve, it really does matter. But it's not what matters most. Do you know what the answer to that question that I just asked should have been? The number one priority or goal in your life, if you're a Christian here today, is that this year, and frankly every year, is that I will grow and mature in my relationship with God. I will grow as a disciple of Jesus, and I will ensure that there is good health in my relationship with God and in my relationship with other people around me. Now, if you answered some, in your head something along those lines, well done. And if you answered something along those lines and you're feeling a little bit smug about it, well, there are some issues of pride that Jesus still needs to work through in your heart. 
So you're still a work in progress. And if you're sitting there going, I didn't answer like that at all. I feel absolutely terrible. Yeah, and you need to understand that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're cool. All right? You answered in some way, I got the wrong answer. That's all right. Jesus loves you. It's absolutely fine. Whoever you are on that scale, you need to hear this and need to respond to this. You see, what we do, what we achieve matters, but it doesn't matter most. It's nowhere near as important as who we are. Now, the danger is we kind of all nod our heads because we know this. As good Christians, we know this. What we do, yeah, it matters, but it's not as important as who we are. Character is more, is more important. God, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Yep, we know that. It's not that important, but what's most important is who we really are. The danger is we all nod our heads. Yes, 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 yes. And then most of our energy is devoted to doing, not being. See, in Luke chapter 10, there's this moment where Jesus sends out the 72. All right? He sends them out. He says, oh, go, go now. I'm sending you out with loads of authority. Go in my name. And they do some amazing stuff. They come back having cast out demons. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, it says, They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Look at what we've done. This is amazing. Look at the success we've had. Look how, uh, wow, look at all the cool stuff that we've done. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's great. Well done. You've achieved some really good stuff. But verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wow. Like he sends them out to do some stuff. They do some stuff and they come back so excited. Like if we just went right now, we're going to stop. We're all going to go out and we're going to cast out some demons and heal some sick people and lead people to the Lord. And then we came back and some of us had achieved it. We would be bouncing off the walls. I cast out some demons on the high street. Woo! And everyone would be like, tell us the story. That is awesome. And some of us would be like, I'm a bit freaked out. How do you know? But it's, either way, it's exciting. And Jesus says, yeah, well done. You've done great. But don't rejoice in the stuff you've done. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, Jesus wants to remind them and he wants to remind us, I feel this really strongly today, Jesus wants to remind us and speak to us right now that our joy comes from our relationship with him rather than our accomplishments for him. Our joy, our security, our foundation, our delight, our, whoa, our sense of yes comes not from the stuff that we do, even all the really good stuff that we can do for him. But it comes from our relationship with him. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 22. He says, the first and greatest commandment, verse 7, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first commandment. The second one, go and love other people. But the first one is, it's not about doing stuff. It's about being. It's about knowing God. To love God with all that you are is the most central thing in life. So if that's the most central thing in life, if this is the most important thing, who you are, you're, you're standing with God, your relationship with him, it's probably good to pause and ask ourselves right now, how is your relationship with God? How's your relationship with God? Now, I, I can bet a bunch of us begin to answer that question so with something along the lines of, well, I'm here, aren't I? I go to church. I'm part of a community. I serve on a team. I give some money. I know you're here. I can see you in the room. Like, I know you're physically here. Your mind may well be somewhere very different. In fact, looking at you, some of you, you definitely are. <laughs> Is he talking to me? 
smile, look. Mm, yes, everyone's nodding, yes, good point. <laughs> Boom, think about a million different things. Some of us are sitting in this room going, oh my gosh, I do not want to be here. I don't want to ask that question. Like, externally, I want people to think I'm here, but internally, mm, nah. How's your relationship with God? All Christian activity aside, all the external stuff, all the stuff you can do for God, all the Bible reading, all the, pre- all, the, all the good stuff, put all that to one side. How's your relationship with God? How's your joy in Him? Are you hearing His voice? Do you trust Him? Do you know Him? How's your faith? Because isn't it a little bit strange that when, that when thinking about our relationship with God, we so easily default to what we're doing for God. So easily point to the activity that we do. Well, I read my Bible every day and I pray every day and I'm practicing spiritual disciplines and I'm doing this. I'm not saying they're wrong things. We'll get to that in a moment. But somehow we think that activity equals relationship. I have to constantly remind myself that when it comes to my relationship with Han, my wife, or my kids, yes, activity is important. Doing stuff with them is important. But what really matters is just being with them. Just being with them. That, that's, that's what matters more. And, and, and when you have young children, it's, it's, not about quantity, it's not about quality of time. It's about quantity of time because quantity is quality. I've got to be with them. If I'm never with them, just be. Just, just me and Han, just the two of us. There's not, it doesn't matter how much fun stuff we do. That's kind of around the edges. The be together. And if that's the case in a human this way relationship, how much more is it important in, in this relationship activity is not wrong quite the opposite in fact but activity that doesn't flow out of relationship is dead it becomes pharisaical and and frankly just to be blunt jesus does not like it hearts first and then actions follow in fact actions must follow because otherwise we've not really understood the first one if there's nothing that we're doing there's a kind of sense of, well, I'm, I'm all on the first commandment and the second one, you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, now nah, I'm all right. You haven't really understood the first one then. But if we just focus on the second one without understanding the first one, we, we're getting ourselves into dangerous, dangerous territory. You see, left to ourselves, there is a natural slide away from intimacy. There's an, always a natural slide away from intimacy. No, n- no one drifts towards intimacy no one drifts towards holiness no one drifts toward well i just won't pay much attention to it and somehow miraculously i've got this deeper wonderful relationship with god no that's not the way it works we drift naturally the other way and it becomes backsliding and 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 christian activity may remain for a while but intimacy with god has long since left the building how's your relationship with god See, somehow it's become part of our default thinking that external markers of success are an indication that everything must be right and healthy. Because otherwise things wouldn't be successful, were they? Look at stuff, and uh, as long as all those things, well, look how they're doing. But the sad reality is, I'm just going to be really brutally honest with you, the sad reality is it's entirely possible, it's completely possible to build a church, to build a ministry, to lead a team, to lead a, a, a community, to lead an organization, Outside, inside, whatever. It's completely possible to do all of that relying on your own gifts, your own personality, your own skills, your own talents, and your own experience. 
it's entirely possible to be successful in serving Christ without thinking much of Jesus or relying on him. It's pretty easy to say bold things about God without living them out. It's pretty easy to tell others how to pray and point out, hey, you should do this. This is a real good acronym without actually praying ourselves. It's pretty good, easy to be able to do a bunch of stuff without fundamentally the heart being right. And Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, probably one of some of the most sobering verses in the Bible, they should cause us to think again. Verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Like, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure there are any more stark warnings than this in all of Scripture. I, I, I said this a few weeks ago. We don't like warnings in Scripture, do we? Like, t- tell us the good stuff. Tell me Jesus loves me and everything's going to be okay. He loves you and everything's going to be okay. But there is these sober warnings that come in Scripture. And warnings, as I said a few weeks ago, they're actually invitations. Whenever you see a warning, it's, it's, it's like a big flashing neon light say, sign saying, hey, don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. Seriously, it's going to muck you up. But the flip side of it is if you do this, wow, you're going to walk into some real life. See, look what Jesus says here. There are people who invest in doing more than being, and they're very successful at it. They have all the marks of an incredibly successful ministry of performing miracles. They're driving out demons. They're prophesying. Wow, these these guys look the real deal. They, They are doing the stuff. They are playing the part. There's just one thing terribly, terribly wrong. Jesus says, I never knew you depart from me. And you think, how is that possible? Like, how is that possible? He knows everything about us. Scripture tells us he knit us together in our mother's wombs. Scripture tells us there is nowhere we can go from the presence of God How is it possible that he can say, I didn't know you? See, the no is personal. It's intimate. It's a similar intimacy to that which Adam and Eve knew in the garden when they were naked and unashamed in the presence of God. They knew God, and God knew them. Having a successful ministry, being sincere in calling God Lord, even knowing a lot about God, None of these things really matter if we remain unknown by Jesus. Jesus doesn't say we can't do things, can't lead things, can't even build church without him. Evidently, evidently we can because these people did. What he says is that in the end, these things are worth nothing unless they flow out of a relationship, an intimacy, a knowing of him. In other words, what we do matters, but nowhere near as much as who we are. Now, It should be both a big warning to us, like a huge flashing neon light, and also an incredible invitation to us. Because just think about the flip side of that. Just think about the, the warning of you, I don't know you. The invitation is, I will know you and you will know me. Time and time again throughout scripture, we get these kind of warnings that are also incredible invitations. 
Think about John 15. John 15, verse 4 and 5. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow, think about that for a moment. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. But with Jesus, wow, you can bear much fruit. Apart from Jesus, separating out from him, you're going to get cut off. But with Jesus, incredible intimacy and knowing. And wow, think of the invitation. Just think of the famous story. I've preached on this before. Mary and Martha. Martha is running around Luke chapter 10. She's doing lots of stuff. It's all good stuff. She's cleaning and sorting and cooking and, and being hospitable. She's, she's like an excellent, outstanding, hospitable person. She's doing some great stuff. And Mary just sitting at the feet of Jesus doing absolute diddly squat, it seems. And Martha seems incredibly justified in being cheesed off with her. Because of course you would be. Jesus is here. I've got to do this stuff. Get off your butt and come and help me. That kind of default saying we all go to. And then Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. One thing is necessary. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Knowing him. Being with him. Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing that I have asked of the Lord. One thing that I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing's necessary, one thing I ask, that I will dwell, sit at the feet, be with, abide in, know the presence of the Almighty. Number one on our priority list. Number one on our job description. Number one in our goal setting and everything else in our priorities. Number one thing to be successful, to be with Jesus. Because out of my being with Jesus, I can do great things for him and with him. Not the other way around. No one achieves great things for Jesus without first being with Jesus. No one can do great things for the Lord without first knowing and being sitting at the feet and being with Jesus. And here's the truth. We are the most distracted generation ever. We're the most distracted generation ever. And so if we're going to be with Jesus and know him and be able to sit at his feet and to dwell in his presence, wow, we, we're going to need to fight for this. See, Jesus himself gives us an incredible model of how we can live with all the competing demands around us. If you think about Jesus for a moment, he, he had the potential to be the most stressed out person on the planet. Everywhere he went, crowds of people turned up to want stuff from him. And everywhere he went, there were other groups of people who were trying to kill him. Now, not many of us in this room have either of those things going on, and very few of us have both of those things going on. I imagine, in fact, none of us do. Most of us don't live our lives out thinking, every time I turn up for somewhere, hordes of people are going to turn up and clamor for me. And if you're a teacher, maybe you feel like that. Every single time I step into a, I've got crowds just wanting, especially if you're a primary school teacher, I just, they just need me so much. But most of us, whatever we're going to do tomorrow morning, 
on our commute are not going to be chased by the paparazzi or by crowds demanding this or demanding that. And most of us in this room are not going to be worrying about it. Like, is someone going to try and kill me today? Am I going to be taken out today? Jesus had all of that. He had disciples following him around who weren't very smart and never really get anything. And can, and can you imagine, I mean, he, Jesus didn't do this because Jesus was perfect. But can you imagine that sense of how many times have I told you this? This is the eye roll again. Like, oh man, I've told you. I've told you. I've told you. <laughs> Jesus never did any of that. Jesus was perfect, right? But he was under more pressure, frankly, than I know some of us in this room are under pressure. We're anxious about tomorrow. There's stuff that's going to happen tomorrow that we've got to deal with, and we're anxious about it. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And he gives us the model of how to know and have an intimate relationship with God and deal with all the various different competing things on us. And we see it in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 15 and 16 but now even more the report about him went out abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Like great crowds, they just wanted him, bit of him, bit of this, do this, do this, do this. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. See, Jesus gives us the model. He engages and then he withdraws. He's engaged and he's, he's busy, he's under pressure, he's doing stuff, he's healing people, he's teaching, he's discipling, he's, he's dealing with family who kind of think he's gone crazy and all sorts of stuff going on in Jesus' life. And when he's there, he's fully engaged and then he withdraws because he needs to be with his father. That's the rhythm of life. That's the rhythm of a, of a successful, fruitful life. I'm fully engaged. Wherever I am right now, I'm present. I'm with my family. I'm present. I'm not looking on my phone. I'm not checking this. I'm not being distracted about what that. Tomorrow, I'm going to be there at the workplace, and I'm fully engaged. I'm present. But in between those moments, I need some withdrawal moments. Because if I just go from engaged to engaged to engaged to engaged, well, I'm going to be burnt out and f run out of fuel very, very quickly, and it's all going to go. But if I engage, I'm here, and then I withdraw. Spend time, sit at the feet, be refreshed, and then I can go, engage. I know. That's the rhythm of life. Engage, withdraw, engage, withdraw. And here's the thing. Engaging is not usually the problem for us. Withdrawing is. Most of us, we're, we're actually all right at the engaging. We need to remind ourselves to put our phones away sometimes and that kind of stuff. But most of us are pretty good on the engaging. But the withdrawing is where we find it a challenge. And this is not just about having quiet times and devotions as important as they are, nor is it just about practicing a long list of spiritual disciplines, again, as important as they are. No, it's not even just about managing your life and diary, although that's part of it. It's not even about having these intense, wonderful experiences of God, although, again, that may well be part of it. A life of intimacy with God, a life of abiding, is about giving God full access to your life full access to every single part of it in every single moment. Think about it. Jesus said, I never knew you. It would make way more sense for him to say, you never knew me. But he says, I didn't know you. Just think of the implications of that for a moment. I never knew you. He never, you never allowed me full access to you. You held off certain parts. You withheld certain parts. He said, you're in in this bit, but not that bit. You can have me on Sundays, but Mondays are mine. 
You can have this area of my personality, but those bits you ain't touching because I'm not going to let you, because I'm in control of that bit. Revelation 3.20, we so often use this verse to describe the gospel to non-Christians. It's the moment where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We so often use that to explain the gospel to non-Christians. Jesus is knocking on the door. You have to open it, let him in. Except that's not what this is. Revelation 3 was not written to non-Christians. It was written to Christians. He writes those words to the church at Laodicea. He says, I'm here. I'm knocking. The life I want for you to know and experience is a life where you invite me in so that I may know you and you may know me in return. Go back to John 15, verse 5 for a moment. Whoever abides in me, not the superstars, not the ones who are super gifted, not the ones who are like incredible, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I love that verse. Because it doesn't say you produce much fruit. It says you will bear much fruit. I've said this to you before so many times. Pear trees just produce pear, just bear pear trees. They don't work really hard. <gasps> oh, are we going to make some apples? No, I think we need to make pears. What are we going to do? No, they, just, they just produce fruit in keeping with the kind of tree it is. I assume pears are trees, right? <laughs> I've not got a good track record of this. <laughs> Just stick to apples, James. <laughs> Here's the point. You abide in him. You remain in him. You make your home with him. You will produce fruit. You will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. You don't have to work very hard at it. it will, it's an overflow. Gifts will emerge not because you have done great things to earn the gifts, but because they're gifts from God who has given them to you. <laughs> Just think of it. This, the, a theology of gift is something we need to work out bigger, way better than this, because we somehow think super Christians have super gifts, right? Or they must be really good. No, they were gifts. You don't look at the kid who has loads of presents at Christmas and think, they must be an awesome kid. Look how many gifts they've got. You think, how flipping much money do their parents have? That's, that's what you do. You don't look at the little ki the kids who've got everything. You look at the parents and think, wow, they're generous, man. And that's perfect, often imperfect, flawed parents. We have a heavenly father who is perfect, who gives gifts to his children. Abide in me. Brothers and sisters, Nick, if you could come back. This is the non-negotiable trait of the Christian life. If you want to be successful, this is the non-negotiable trait. This is what it means to open every area of your life in every moment to him. The warning is a huge invitation, an invitation to a rich, full life of knowing and a being known and enjoying and being enjoyed by God, of allowing the gospel to shape our lives on a daily basis. The highest calling of our lives is to know God, to enjoy him, and to glorify him forever. Grow in that, and you will be successful. That's the invitation that accompanies the warning, that we might know the joy of knowing and being known by God. We, we might have to kill some things to make some space for this in our already hectic lives. We might need to prioritize and focus more on the withdrawing than the engaging. Some of us probably need to engage a little bit more 
We might have to stop some stuff. We might have to start some stuff. We might need to develop a routine. We don't meet Jesus in a routine, but routine helps us do the prioritize the things that are most important. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Let's focus all our energy and our zeal on taking up his invitation. Can we stand?